0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about U.S. elections. What I want versus what I get. Representative democracy has become almost a joke in the United States of America. Catch me on a bad day, and I won't even hedge about that almost part of it. Also, you shouldn't take any solace in the idea that uh, that statement sounds like I'm pointing to something recent, something new. I'm not. Between 1984 and 2003, in those 20 years and five presidential election cycles, I never once casted a vote for the man elected to be president. I realize that it would probably be more politically correct to say the person elected to be president, but get real, it was hard to find even a a woman on a third-party ticket during that period, at least for the presidential spot on the ballot. The problem that I've got with it is that nobody in this country seems to vote their conscience anymore. Check yourself right there if you're tempted to object. I'm likely to judge you pretty harshly if you suggest to me that you have ever had the opportunity to vote for the perfect candidate. And yet we seem to be handed candidates on a consistent basis that we're supposed to act as if they're perfect, or at least treat as if they're the perfect antidote to the other person, who is perfectly wrong in some way. I haven't seen anything other than a marginally acceptable candidate in all that time, and and worse, my fellow Americans seem to sheepishly accept the idea that voting for the lesser of two evils is the way things are supposed to be. I say it's high time that we demanded more. But you know what? I've got members of my family. And I've got members of my extended family, my in-laws, who not only disagree with me, they bristle at my petulance. How dare I suggest that something's wrong here? But that's not even the worst. The worst of all are those of us who never even evaluate candidates in the first place. Some vote for an ideology. Some vote for a ticket. If he's the right party, if he's my political party, I'm going to vote for my guy. Just like you cheer for the guy who's the quarterback of your team, Even if you don't think that he's doing a very good job, he is, after all, the quarterback of your team. Don't even get me started on questions of color. Others vote a color, and I wish I was only talking about red state versus blue state distinctions. I've mentioned before, and I'll get to it later. More specifically, I don't buy into this red state, blue state stuff at all. I acknowledge that it's a very good describer, perhaps, of certain results. I don't acknowledge that it's a predictor of what's going to happen. No, if, it, if we're only about that, where we've, we can't even use the words Republican and Democrat, because maybe on some level, our political analysts realize that there isn't much difference between the two. <laughs> and it doesn't make much difference to talk about a Republican policy versus a Democrat policy if both of them are going to deregulate in such a way that the banks lead us into the kind of debacle we've recently experienced. And if both of them are going to use taxpayer money to bail out those banks, with no strings attached, or no real strings attached, certainly with no teeth attached, when things go wrong. If both of us are going to use a troop surge mentality to address our continued presence on twin war fronts, where we never identified objectives in the first place, and at this point can't say what good or bad will happen by staying or going. So without the ability to make much distinction between what a Republican is and what a Democrat is, except on a few very pet social issues you hear all this red state blue state rhetoric well i'm going to get to those pet social issues here in just a second but before i do i want to talk about a trip that i made just a couple of years ago right after the presidential election and i was in the bible belt i might have been in states other than oklahoma and kansas but uh, i don't think i got as far south as texas but from what i understand by talking with people this wasn't just a uniquely Oklahoma thing. I may have happened to have been in an Oklahoma sports bar watching the NCAA basketball tournament. So it would have been March. This would be a couple of months after Obama was confirmed as president and maybe six months after the election. I overheard a conversation in the booth behind me. A couple of guys, you know, didn't seem to be particularly uneducated. I don't want to paint the state of Oklahoma with a, with a redneck brush here. We're at a sports bar. People are spending money. People are buying drinks. People are buying food. We're watching couple of basketball games at the same time. And uh, the conversation behind me had this quote, and I'm going to try to quote it as directly as I can, going from memory, said something like, uh, too bad we voted the wrong color in that election, and I'm not talking about red or blue. Yes. Now I said the Bible Belt. We are talking about Oklahoma, but you know, maybe that won't surprise people. Maybe there are people who are heightenedly aware of elements of racism and bigotry in Christian circles. I personally don't know that I agree with that. The Christian circles that I run in take notions like all men are created equal, and there is no Jew or Greek at the foot of the cross very seriously. The first of those, a quote from the United States sacred texts, and the second one is a quote from the New Testament, from the Christian's sacred text. So it's probably fair enough to say that it's inappropriate to describe Christians as racists, and it's completely inappropriate even to describe Christians in the Bible Belt as racists. But I will say this I've had some experiences here during the period of the Obama administration that make it slightly less true for me to, to go out there with an idea that Christians as a whole, or specifically, believe that there's no such thing as Jew or Greek, slave or free, black or white at the foot of the cross. I was at a parachurch event. Now, for one of a better way of describing this, this is when a variety of, in this case, Christian denominations get together to do something that's not just a United Methodist thing or a Southern Baptist thing or a Presbyterian thing or even a Lutheran or a Catholic thing. It crosses all those denominational barriers. So it literally is the, the church universal from a Christian perspective. I also have in my past participated actively in parrot church groups, which cut across even all the other barriers as well, where you would get together and have uh, interfaith ministries with people who are Jewish and Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, uh, various other groups, Baha'i. Um, so I, I, this is the kind of thing I'm good at. I, I'm very comfortable in these sorts of Environments where the secondary issues and the minor things which divide particularly the minor things between Christian denominations where theoretically you've got a large group of people who all feel the same things are true at the most important levels. So when you get to those primary beliefs, the kind of beliefs that I spoke about in an episode a, a couple shows back, where you've got a consensus there. You shouldn't have a whole lot of difficulty getting together as a group of people and, and doing outreach together, doing ministry, continuing education, uh, equipping new believers. These should be things which come quite easily. But after the election of Barack Obama, after that victory, not just nationally, but also uh, winning, he won the state that I lived in as well, there seemed to be a lot of a backlash. And again, the thing that I don't like, the thing I like least in the church was a, a political sort of anger seething underneath the surface to where you get, you get your politics and your Christianity mixed up in such a way that sometimes the the politically active Christian concept, the notion of worshiping at the altar of politics instead of at the actual altar gets confused. I was picking this up enough to decide that I might want to speak to it. I mean, it was unmistakable. I ignored it for a while, but at a certain point I thought, no, I need to talk to this because... The way I live my life puts me in a unique position of having encountered lots of people, not just people uh, in the United States or in my local area, but people from around the world who you know I have different experiences and different perspectives and and people who I think have been very gracious to me in allowing me to hear their story and have been very gracious in listening in return. So there's this exchange of ideas where I'm not necessarily speaking from the perspective of my church, my congregation, my neighborhood, or even my city and state. Sometimes I can offer a broader perspective. And I shared a story that was placed online, uh placed online for for me to read. I mean, it wasn't I wasn't uh eavesdropping or just serving the web, I was literally reading something that was placed out there for me and others to read from somebody who works as a substitute teacher in a large metropolitan area with a very diverse racial population. In fact, the area that she lives in, if I'm not mistaken, has not just a diverse racial population, but a diverse ethnic population going back really centuries, where you have large groups of Scandinavian immigrants, families who've descended down in a pretty clean way ethnically. So you've got a lot of ethnic groups there as well. She worked as a substitute teacher. And on this particular day, I believe the day after the election, she was called to teach fourth grade, I believe, in an inner city, what we might call an inner city classroom. So most of her students were African-American. And what she described was a sense that these kids were, well, first off, excited, energized, very aware of what had just happened politically in their country, and really felt like they were connected to the political process in America for, per- for maybe the first time in their lifetimes. Or maybe they had seen in their parents a sense that something had just happened that their parents had never felt was possible in their lifetime. And in some ways, their pride, their American pride, had hit a- an all-time high. And she left that classroom setting. She'd left that experience as a teacher, uh, describing it as a moment in her life that she would never forget. So what I did was I took that and tried to explain at, at this time of prayer and share, so again, back at this para-church event. So this time of prayer and share, we're going around the room talking either about some things that we'd uh, experienced that we found uh, to be a challenge to us or things we we're struggling with, things that we needed help or accountability with, or things that uh, were real, what we call in the church, what we call God moments. One of the elements of my theology is that I don't necessarily, I'm not very quick to accept the idea of coincidence. Uh, as a believer in cause and effect, and as a believer in a first cause, I'm more inclined to believe in what what we call God incidences than just coincidences, that there's a pattern here that's really important. Whether you have a deist perspective, that what's going on here was put into play a long time ago and we're just seeing the impact of something that was triggered, or whether you have a much more uh, active uh, interventionist theology where you believe that God is actually right there at every moment, casting the lot uh, on every single decision that gets made. It doesn't matter. I I still am not willing to surrender to the idea of of something being merely coincidental. But in this case, I, I told him that one of the things that I had experienced that week that I really felt was a great God moment was being in the place to read that email. Because, you see, I did not vote for Barack Obama to be president. i said this before, it's old news, but if my hands had been tied and I'd been asked to vote for one of those two major political parties, not going to the polls at all was a real possibility. Luckily, something had happened during this most recent election cycle that had changed my life as well and energized me politically, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. I hope to talk about that some, and also to talk about some of these pet social issues which get used in the political arena. But really, the thing that happened was I decided I was never going to vote for a major political candidate uh, unless something very significant changed, maybe uh, a change where we're getting back to what the original view of America really was that people who were representing our people this government of the people by the people for the people idea would not necessarily be run and operated by whoever has the most cash whoever has the most political power whoever has the most connections which is really where we're at right now i can't explain to you how barack obama in less than 10 years went from somebody who couldn't even get the credentials to get a ticket to be on the floor of his of the democratic national convention to being the person who was uh, selected by that body to be their presidential candidate but uh, that in and of itself was very impressive to me. It was not impressive enough to give me that vote. But I did read the views of people who were kind of overcoming their disappointment that the, the political party they support was no longer in power. And I also read the views of people who were very excited, very energized, not so much the people who were playing the I told you so card and all that, but the people who were a little bit surprised by it And that classroom full of children that Lindsay described was a classroom full of children who were genuinely surprised by it. So I shared that and some of the people at the table that I was sitting at, who I had already kind of picked up had a very different political outlook, turned on me, not just to me, but to me a little bit, they turned on me angry that I would make a suggestion that something profoundly good might come from the election of Barack Obama angry that I might suggest that a group of very young black children would feel like for the first time it really is possible that they could be presidents someday. And they told me that I was expressing racist views and that those children were racist too. I was completely taken aback. What could possibly be racist about the idea that this country's always said it was a place where all men are created equal and all women created equal and have the opportunity to be leaders if, if the people pick them and that race shouldn't play a role. I was, if anything, making an argument that we'd seen with our own two eyes the reality that race didn't necessarily play a role, that it wasn't a veto, that it wasn't a, a password that you had to say to get admitted into the club. And I, I, I was taken totally aback, not just at the words spoken to me, the, the very idea that this classroom full of kids could somehow be racist because they were happy that Obama won an election, but at the idea that I was doing something wrong by being persuaded or even moved by that observation, but worse even sharing it. Uh, it, it just it's, it caught me off guard. And so the message I'd like to give is that we can look at, at a certain part of the Bible Belt in America and say, well, there's a lot of backward people living there. And therefore, if somebody expresses a racist idea that we shouldn't have voted for the black guy, that we should isolate that in our heads, that we as a nation should compartmentalize that and say, well, that doesn't necessarily represent the views of Americans. And what I would tell you is that, I, again, I don't think it's a Christian concept. I think it's an anti-Christian concept. But it's an anti-Christian concept that I heard not just in a bar watching a ball game. It's an anti-Christian concept that I've heard in the church as well. And that's something that we really have to wrestle with. Because in the United States of America, we've got a cancerous a cancerous force at play when it comes to politics. And it disturbs me greatly when we see that same political point of view with its cancerous quality creeping inside the halls of the church as well, or even, in my mind, even more uh, dangerous, creeping inside parachurch activities, which even if a church has a particular political bent, even if the church kind of walks away from its obligation as a tax-free entity to not play favorites, you'd expect a parachurch group, by its very nature, to rise above even uh, some of the negative qualities of any one congregation represented in that activity. So I was greatly disturbed by that. Let me first talk about what I think are some of the things that we deceive ourselves on when we talk about how Republicans and Democrats are truly different, that there's something to be said for the the right wing versus the left wing in our country today. And I want to do so by opening up with a, a confession that is probably out there. Notice how I stopped at the year 2003 when mentioning that I'd never cast a vote for the man who became president of the United States. And for a long time, I wore that as a badge of honor. And, you know, that kind of implies some things that I think are obvious that maybe need to be said. And maybe it's really going to aggravate some people that I offer this fact as an apology. But in 2004, for the first time in my life, I cast a vote for the person who was president of the United States and thereby remained president of the United States. Now, let's not be silly. One individual vote in a mid-to-large state is not going to tip the hat of the election in one way or another. And unlike the election in the year 2000, this election wasn't all that close. And if you want to be one of those um, really, really radical people who suggest that everyone who did not vote for Gore is responsible for the election of Bush and thereby somebody who voted for a third party in the year 2000 is guilty of electing Bush. Well, I think that's just absolutely nuts. We'll get to that concept in somewhat more detail here in a minute. But I don't think that a vote for John Hagelin in the year 2000 is the reason that that Gore didn't become president, because I was extremely unlikely to vote for Gore, even though I was perhaps more unlikely at the time to vote for Bush. So what happened between 2000 When the choice of Bush or Gore turned me off so extremely that the only thing I could do was vote for a third party. And how did that change on the way to 2004? Well, first off, from the perspective of the Democratic Party, my issue was 100% Al Gore. As somebody who had a lot of experience working in record stores and working with the record industry, there was no way I was going to be comfortable casting a vote for somebody who was is pro-censorship. I could rattle off an entire list of other things that, that Gore believed in that I didn't necessarily believe in. But my biggest issue with him was that he held positions that liberals don't agree with. And yet liberals were suggesting that the only, good, the only good way to vote was to vote for him. I didn't necessarily see that was true. If you wanted to take a somewhat more libertarian approach, where you wanted to be fiscally conservative in how the government behaved, but you also wanted to be economically conservative, so you're not necessarily buying the Republican line on how we should spend our money in our budgets – then where do you go? Well, you could go over to the Democratic side of the fence and they might have some views on certain social issues that I'm okay with. They might have some other views on other social issues that drive me absolutely nuts. But when you come to a core issue, like how does a man make his living? You know, the old line about Republicans getting votes because they voted their wallet, that taxpayers, anti-tax voters, will always vote against anybody who they think might raise taxes because their vote is a defense of their livelihood that kind of concept. Well, a vote against Gore in this case was a defense of my livelihood because there was no way I was going to vote for somebody who actually had been if nothing else a major thorn in the side of the record industry that I was that I'd been working in, you know, throughout the decade in the 90s. There was absolutely no way I was going to be comfortable casting a vote for somebody who who'd, who'd cause that kind of mischief and who might actually one day make a make a proposal or pass a law that could get me thrown in jail for selling Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon, because Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon has profanity in it. Listen to the song Money again, and then ask yourself, what are the words that George Carlin's not allowed to say on the radio? I think you're going to find a connection there where there actually were threats. Again, state of Oklahoma, I'm aware of the fact that there were uh, proposed legislations and some ideas afoot that would have made it a criminal act for a record store clerk to ring somebody up, selling them an album that had obscene words or obscene ideas on it. You could, you basically could not just lose your, your livelihood, you could find yourself in jail for selling Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon, the best-selling rock and roll album of the time, anyway, in the state of Oklahoma. Now, that law didn't pass. But the impetus behind that law was Al Gore and his wife, Tipper. They couldn't have my vote under any circumstances. So... At the time, I began looking at third-party candidates, and to be honest with you, none of the third-party candidates appealed to me. We'll talk a little bit about how I was mistaken about that, but the closest I came was looking at um, at one of the largest third parties, not the Green Party, but one of the other larger third parties, where John Hagelin seemed to be the natural candidate. And in a sort of uh, coup d'etat of sorts, a last-minute change in the vote and, and some, mm. some hubbub, Pat Buchanan swooped in and took over that party and became their nominee for president. Well, again, there's no way I was going to be comfortable with Pat Buchanan for uh, anyone who might line up a set of issues, including being uh, fiscally conservative, and say, well, shouldn't you like Buchanan because he's fiscally conservative, but he's not in favor of government intervention and, and yada, yada, yada? No, could not vote for Buchanan, was so annoyed, in fact, that he had bumped Hagelin off that ticket that even though... John Hagelin was not somebody about whom I had a lot of passion. I voted for him anyway. I followed him to the political party that picked him up in the the midst of the wreckage. And in one of the more comic moments in my political life, I cast a vote for President of the United States for somebody representing the Transcendental Meditation Party. I was happy to do it. Not proud to do it, necessarily, but happy to do it. Because truthfully, my choices, in my mind, my choices were Bush or Gore. At the time, I hadn't considered Nader to be a credible choice. So there you go. So what happened between that and 2004? Well, in 2004, John Kerry had a realistic chance of getting my vote. He represented a major party. He had an honest shot of winning. He was a veteran, so I didn't consider him to be anti-military. But he also was part of that Democratic wing that, despite being very East Coast in his point of view... Was I think probably not necessarily going to make a lot of bad economic decisions. But let's be honest, people. John Kerry was an incredibly inept political candidate. And to this day, I don't understand some of the choices that he made. I could not stomach one bad decision after another, one pointless spin on a political issue where it wasn't necessary to go down that avenue. And eventually, he became so distasteful to me that, like in 2000, He became a candidate that I just couldn't vote for. He just could not earn my vote. The biggest mistake that I've ever made in the polls was casting a vote for George W. Bush instead. I say that as somebody who was a Republican at the time, is still technically a Republican now, despite everything I've said. If you don't think the political parties are credible, why would you bother switching? Why would you bother changing? Doesn't matter. It's a non-factor. In fact, I see myself in 2012 remaining Republican because of both primaries that are available to me. The one where I can perhaps have the most influence is the Republican primary. So for one for of a better word, you can feel comfortable calling me a Republican if that makes you, uh, if that makes you feel better, if names are important. The reason I'm arguing that names aren't important, however, is that when you look at the Republican Party and you say, hey, Greg, what are you talking about? There's real differences between right and left in this country because the Republican Party is, is anti-gay and the Republican Party is anti-abortion and the Republican Party is pro-Prayer in school. And, you know, you could rattle off all of these pet social issues. It's not hard for us to think of them. And it is pretty clear that the Republicans' political platform has very different planks on it than the Democrats' political platform. But you know what? The whole thing is a dog and pony show, and maybe we should start being ashamed of ourselves because we're getting fooled by it. There was a Law & Order TV episode many years ago where one of the political candidates uh, running for a mayor's position or a city council position was arrested for killing the other candidate. And it was one of those deals where the uh, the Republican was the suspect, the Democrat was the the dead body. And in this case, the initial thought on the on the part of the police and and even the district attorney's office was, well, maybe this was truly political. Maybe this came down to um, a political ideology gone so horribly, violently wrong that one person killed another person over a strongly held political belief. Wasn't the case. It came down to a you know question of uh, gerrymandering, a question of uh, voting districts, of somebody being squeezed out, and the two guys running against each other. And what it came down to was that. For the uh, the Democratic candidate, who was a liberal and I believe uh, a gay male, he wasn 't as distasteful to the man who killed him as their political rhetoric and their public TV appearances made it sound that they actually routinely scheduled debates against each other where one of them intended to um, stir up all kinds of muck and and throw a lot of mud and talk about the other person being you know depraved and you know an abomination before God, so that the other person could then point to him and complain about you know the uh, government takeover of our private lives and government invasion of our bedrooms and so forth and so on, it wasn't an act to the extent that neither man believed a part of what they were saying. Both of the candidates believed a part of what they were saying, maybe even a good big part of what they were saying. But the entire reason that they had a debate in the first place and had those issues on the debate conversation in the first place it was so they could talk about those issues in public in the first place. And one guy could call each other you know slurs for homosexuality and the other person could call the other guy a bigot for no other reason than each one of them benefited by getting their own supporters to pull out a check and write a check and give money to the candidate to grease the wheels of the political machine by trying to tap into what you call your, your base nothing gets your base energized more than these crazy emails that get sent out where people say things like, hey, you know, the government's going to ban, you know, um, all references to God on television. Now, I I remember when Touched by an Angel was on TV, you'd get emails all the time about how the government was going to take over and Touched by an Angel was going to be taken off TV because it was a religiously wholesome show. If you ask people, they would tell you that the Waltons was forced off TV by liberal elites controlling the FCC. All these sort of crazy ideas are there not because they're true, but because they raise money. So, if the one thing you can point to to tell me that there's some substantive and real difference between these two political parties is in and of itself a sham, a dog and pony show, maybe it's time we reevaluated who we're voting for. That's what I should have done in 2004. That's what I didn't do until 2008. And the difference between those two years is I finally figured out who Ralph Nader was. I want to talk a little bit more about the, uh, the election process and maybe talk a little bit more about my experiences holding a ballot in the, in the years 2004 and 2008. But this seems a natural point to step aside and introduce our different drummer this week, Ralph Nader. If I make a spirited attempt at giving a biographical background to Ralph Nader, I am going to fail. I don't know that you can do better than the um, film documentary available on DVD called An Unreasonable Man. It covers everything up to, I believe, the aftermath of the 2004 political election and was actually in theater sometimes between 2004 and 2008, which is when I encountered the film. And when I had friends talking to me about the film, and when I began to actually stop in my tracks and take a serious look at Ralph Nader as a candidate. So if you want to know about his background, who he was, uh, where was he born, is he truly American, is he the son of immigrants, Uh, how was he trained? I encourage you to go find that information at the best possible location, and that best possible location is probably the film An Unreasonable Man. Instead, I'm going to speak to the differences in my head between the years 2000, 2004, and 2008. So the first thing I want to do is answer the question, did Ralph Nader cost Al Gore the election in 2000? I think it goes without saying that it's ridiculous to suggest that that ushered in eight years of George Bush, because there was another, there was another election, and in that other election, Al Gore could have run again. I'm not exactly sure I understand why Al Gore didn't run again. Uh, Not that it would have mattered. I wouldn't have voted for him either way. However, in 2000, did Ralph Nader's presence on the ballot change things in that way? And I'll only offer this one statistic before I let someone else speak with a great deal of passion about it. 250,000 Democrats in the state of Florida voted for George W. Bush. Let me repeat that. 250,000, give or take, Democrats voted for George W. Bush in the state of Florida. So even if as many as 100,000 people voted for for Ralph Nader, and maybe a third of them wouldn't have voted for anybody otherwise, and maybe most of the rest of them would have have voted for Gore instead of Bush, can this number, this 50,000, compare to a quarter of a million people? If the Democrats would like to be angry about what happened in the state of Florida, they should start inside their own house. And that is the message that Jello Biafra has given in his spoken word album, Machine Gun in the Clown's Hand. He actually has a track on that CD called, And Gore Made Us Want to Ralph. I'm going to play a little snippet of that for a couple of reasons. First, the ideas that I want to express here are spoken very well by Jello Biafra, so I might as well let him have his word. Also, he's a different drummer. And in the segment when I, when I introduced Jello Biafra early on as a different drummer, I didn't let his spoken word speak for itself. I did all the talking. So here's what Jello Biafra says. After a point in his talk where he says this, Ralph Nader didn't cost Al Gore the election in 2000, Al Gore cost Al Gore the election in 2000. Here's Jello Biafra. There's no way we were going to vote for anybody, even if Bush was the alternative, if the other supposed opponent was also pro-death penalty, pro-drug war, pro-WTO pro-destroying the welfare benefits. Gore was also pro-Star Wars. There's no way I, for one, am going to vote for anybody who is that toxic and that far on the wrong side of things I care that deeply about. One of my favorite podcasts, one of the ones I try never to miss, is Dan Carlin's Common Sense. You can find that at www.dancarlin.com. And one of the areas that Dan Carlin and I agree is that it almost is nonsensical to talk about there being a difference between Republicans and Democrats, and that our system is so corrupt right now that you almost have to vote for somebody else, anybody else, to make a difference. Unfortunately, during most of my voting experience, the somebody else hasn't been credible. There hasn't been a good candidate to vote for. But you know what? In 2000, 2004, and 2008, there was a good candidate to vote for, and that candidate was Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader is a big reason why I've decided that I don't care if I ever vote for a person who becomes president again. I'm not naive. If Ralph Nader runs again in 2012, he's going to be in his mid-70s. And even if he can run a credible campaign, it wouldn't shock me. He's the kind of guy who could still be incredibly high-functioning at that age. He's not going to get enough votes to become president. What I'd like to see is the same thing I called for in 2008, for up to 20% of the American people to vote for anybody else. Anybody else write in candidates for Mickey Mouse. It doesn't mean that one of those third-party presidents has to get 10, 15 percent of the vote. If one of them got 5 percent of the vote, that might be enough to change the system. But more importantly, if collectively at least 20 percent of all of us say, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to vote for either one of you. I've had it. I've had it with a Barack Obama who runs a Democratic ticket as a more liberal than the other guy candidate and whose military policy looks exactly the same as the military policy we've had for the the past 8, 10, 15 years. You know, I've had it with the fact that there's no fundamental difference between these two parties when money's involved. It's almost sickening. So, instead, in 2008, I threw my support to Ralph Nader, and in 2004, I strongly believe I should have done the same. Nader has run these political campaigns with dignity and intelligence. He spoke the truth and did everything he could to obliterate the traditional boundaries between Democrat and Republican inside the election process. But you know what? By doing so, he created a threat. And those parties reacted to that threat by successfully blackmailing him from even attending the presidential debates in 2004. Let me say that again, because I don't know that everyone is aware of this. Ralph Nader was invited to go to those debates but he wasn't allowed to speak because the decision on who's allowed to speak in a presidential debate is made by the Democrats and the Republicans. It's been that way ever since the Ross Perot incident, which I'm sure is how the Republicans and the Democrats feel about 1992, the Ross Perot incident. The Democrats and the Republicans pick who can be at a debate and who can't. And lo and behold, it's always just the Democrat or the Republican. Oh, they have a pretext. Their pretext is, well, how many how many votes do you have or how many how many petitions have gotten signed? How many states are you on the ballot in? And But those state ballot initiatives, those state ballot requirements are made by guess who? Republicans and Democrats who may individually vary in terms of who's the majority and who's the minority in any one of our 50 United States, but collectively put together, they're beyond a super majority. They are a super duper majority and they can do anything they want to. So if these two political parties decide to collude and combine their political influence to make collective decisions to stop average, ordinary citizens from running for president, they are going to succeed. And they succeeded so much with Ralph Nader, who, let's be honest, isn't really an average, ordinary citizen. He's got more influence. He's got more celebrity credibility than you know anybody living in my neighborhood does. But he was not even allowed to, to have a ticket and sit in the audience at the debates. He was met outside the presidential, one of the presidential debates in the 2004 election cycle, and he was told that he was uh, not welcome on the property and he would be arrested if he, if he persisted in staying. And he said, listen, okay, even though I've got a ticket, don't worry about my ticket. I won't even go into the building. But C-SPAN or CNN or somebody has invited me into their truck. I can watch the debate on television in their truck, do the interview with them right afterward. It's convenient they've got all the necessary recording equipment. They also have the necessary broadcast equipment. I can see the debates there won't cause any trouble. And let's be honest. Who's going to disbelieve Ralph Nader when Ralph Nader says he's not going to cause trouble? This is not a guy who is, you know, chains himself to the front of nuclear plants or abortion clinics. That's not his style. It's not his approach. So if he says he's not going to he's not going to be a disruptive force inside the auditorium, he's not. And if he says he's not going to be a disruptive force, you know, 150 feet outside the auditorium in a TV broadcast truck, he's not. You know, the police and the authorities outside that building responded when Ralph Nader offered to stay out of the building and just do an interview inside a television truck. He reached for his handcuffs and gave him one last warning to get off the property or to be arrested for criminal trespass and taken to jail. Are you still watching presidential debates on TV? Are you still reading news accounts of presidential debates the day after? Have you ever sought out notes or transcripts from any of these presidential debates? Why? Why? Don't you recognize an absolute sham when you see it? Unless you get entertainment from prefabricated, homespun, almost completely fake, although somewhat improvised political drama, what are you doing to yourself? You're talking about an event where two people have gotten together and found a way, not just by picking who can be in the debate and Picking the venue together and even picking who's going to moderate the debates together and perhaps even having more say than we know in what questions can and can't be asked. And certainly by controlling how long a question can be answered, we've got a group of people who've controlled the message. They're not going to tell the American people what we need to hear. Two minutes with one minute rebuttal is commercial time. These are sound bites. We complain and complain and complain about our soundbite-driven political process. We don't like the TV ads. We don't like the attack approach. We don't like the fact that it all comes down to one-liners. You know what? We've got ourselves to blame. We've got ourselves to blame. One person who stood up in the midst of that and said, not on my watch, not on my watch. I will oppose the debates. I'll participate if they'll let me. If they won't, I'll participate as best I can. If I can't do that, I'll speak out against them. And Ralph Nader's Nader's stand during the presidential debates persuaded me about lots of things. First off, he didn't throw a tantrum like a little kid. Second off, he didn't get arrested or go to court because he thinks that litigation is the way to solve all our problems. The man also, by the way, is a lawyer. He demonstrated to me that he does have the ability to negotiate head-to-head on an anti-nuclear missile ballistic treaty or on a high-level economic affairs in, you know, in a G7 kind of a conference, that he does have the ability to speak to those things. Some people during the election cycle said, well, maybe Ralph Nader's not the right guy, because his military experience is somewhat limited. He isn't a career politician. Maybe we aren't going to be comfortable with him standing toe-to-toe with Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-il. Maybe he'll make a mistake as a, as a relative novice in the realm of high-powered, high-level international affairs. Well, you know what? A couple of things I'd like to say about that. First, I think he did demonstrate in moments like that debate fiasco that he's cool under pressure, that he understands the laws, he understands the rules, and he can be very persuasive in a debate. But second, maybe back then we thought that the biggest threat to the United States was something that might come from us out out of where Russia stands today. I mean, obviously, we're not dealing with the old communist Russian bloc, but, you know, Putin's a strong and somewhat formidable figure if he chooses to be or Kim Jong-il, or the Middle East. Okay, so we think that a man who speaks Arabic and English both fluently is going to be completely ineffective in addressing diplomatic questions and handling diplomatic issues in the Middle East. As I say the words, the words sound insanely stupid. I hope they sound insanely stupid to everyone else as well. A man who is legally trained, understands the history of his country, holds degrees from Harvard and Princeton, and fluently speaks both English and Arabic is the wrong person, To negotiate for the United States of America in high level diplomatic situations in the Middle East? It's absolutely nuts. But you know what, the other problem that I've got is the biggest threat to this country, maybe in 2006, first part of 2007, might have been perceived to be something external, something in foreign affairs, something related to 9 11. But I don't think that's true anymore. I think clearly at the time that I cast my vote for Ralph Nader, way in the front of my head, was the fact that the biggest threat facing the United States, and frankly the world, is the way we've lost complete control of the accountabilities and the integrity of our of our financial and economic institutions. Well, again, if you know anything about the history of Ralph Nader, his personal integrity, his ability to successfully stand his ground against large corporations bent on buying him off, and if they can't buy him off, framing him for some kind of you know illicit misbehavior, and, and if that doesn't work, threatening him. I think that he would have been the exact right person for the economic problems we're facing today. And I think he would have brought a good deal of balance and wisdom and the, the right kind of calming influence, the right kind of strategic vision for the things that we're facing internationally as well. For that reason, I don't know if in 2012 I'll feel comfortable voting for uh, Ralph Nader based on his age and based on you know where we may stand as a country at that point in time. I I'm going to feel a lot more comfortable voting for Nader than I would for anybody that the Republican or Democratic parties can offer up. That includes Barack Obama. It certainly includes Sarah Palin. And that fact alone is good enough reason to cite Ralph Nader as a different drummer.
1: Starbase 66, the international Star Trek and science fiction podcast. Join our collective at www.simplysyndicated.com or via iTunes, keyword Starbase 66.
0: From this time forward, you will listen to us. I don't want to pretend that anything I'm saying here is anything other than completely obvious. I know it is. I mean, if you just... Step outside your firmly entrenched political position. And I say this really speaking to members of my family as much as anything else. I would love for members of my family to join me in the decision to say, you know what? It doesn't matter who I vote for as long as it's not one of those two candidates. As long as it's not one of those two major political parties. I actually pitched this idea to my mother this year. And her answer to me was that there's no one else in those third parties who's credible enough to vote for. Well, you're making an assumption there, aren't you? You're going to assume that your vote's actually going to elect somebody. You're more likely to cast an opposition vote for Mondale in 1984, as I did. Not that I wanted Mondale to become president of the United States, but I certainly didn't want Ronald Reagan to win with a 75% majority. My thought was, any vote for Mondale that dampens the enthusiasm of this quote-unquote landslide and makes an obviously senile, and at the time, I guess, in retrospect, perhaps obviously uh, dementia patient president feel like he can do anything he wants because he's got all the American people behind him. I was more likely to accidentally make Mondale president of the United States than you are accidentally making any one of these third parties president. So why are we unwilling to vote for one of those third parties? Uh, why are we unwilling to cast a vote for somebody without fear that the vote is going to quote unquote accidentally put somebody in office that I don't know all that well, that I don't really want an office? Because I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm not telling you which third party. Vote for any of them. Vote for somebody else. It doesn't matter who it is, as long as it's not one of the parties who are controlling the entire process in a way that is so close to being corruption, that if it's not corruption, we need a new word for it. And if you don't believe it's corruption, explain the 2004 presidential debates to me again. I missed the point. So what's the problem? First off, it's a horse race mentality. We have a major problem in this country with our horse race mentality. The second problem is our lack of faith. What did I tell my mother? I told my mother this. If you really think that there's somebody in the Republican Party you'd want to vote for if he defected or she defected to a third party, what are you waiting for? You've got to vote for a third party before you make that person feel like they could credibly change parties and get elected. We have this idea that, well, until there's a good enough candidate running with the libertarians, I could never vote for a libertarian. Guess what? There's never going to be a candidate in the the libertarian ticket who is quote-unquote good enough by your standard – If you haven't told all those people ready to walk away from the Republican Party, ready to walk away from the Democratic Party because they feel like they need to take a shower to wash themselves clean of the smell of all the money, you're not going to succeed in doing that if they don't believe that the American people would vote for such a person. What you need is that candidate you've got in your head. And I don't know who it is. I'm going to pick a candidate. I'm going to pick a Republican who's probably still available to run for office, who's a black man, who has, in my mind, a pretty good head on his shoulders who might actually be able to persuade people because he doesn't lack charisma. So just for the sake of argument, let's say J.C. Watts. Is a guy like J.C. Watts ready to leave the Republican Party and run on an an independent party? Would he put himself out there? Would he take that political risk? Would he put his family at risk? Because, again, we're talking about people who put Ralph Nader under surveillance when he decided to stand up to General Motors and say, maybe the sun visors that you're putting in your car shouldn't be made out of metal. Maybe that's a bad idea. You know, a radical concept, a you know, crazy leftist liberal idea that maybe the the equipment that's in the car to protect you against the dashboard shouldn't be made out of solid steel, too. Good idea. You know, but the kind of people that would put Nader under surveillance would certainly put J.C. Watson under surveillance, too. Would he do it? I don't think he would do it unless he saw that enough Americans had voted for a third-party candidate that he personally feels superior to. You want a better third-party candidate? vote for a third-party candidate. Vote for a crappy third-party candidate, and then you're going to persuade somebody who is truly in the middle, somebody who is a radical moderate, sitting inside one of these political parties, holding his nose because of the stench, waiting for his or her opportunity to step out of that party and do something truly American for the first time ever. You want to get a good third-party candidate to vote for, vote for a third-party candidate who's crappy. Show those people who are not part of the independent movement today that the independent movement today is credible and that they're a better candidate than the person you're voting for. So maybe if you vote for somebody who's not a very good candidate, and you know you're voting for somebody who's not a very good candidate, but that person's not the lesser of two evils. That person is a credible candidate, at least in the sense that they're not in the pocket of the political machines. Then you're going to get, four years later, somebody who actually is credible to vote for. And maybe then we'll have four parties, five parties. I'm not looking for the best third party around. I'm looking for the political system that our founding fathers had in mind. Where we're not dealing with a whole bunch of career politicians all the time, every time. And we don't have two fake choices to pick from. So why isn't that happening? It's not happening because of what I call the horse race mentality. And this is is something where I think all of us have to look in the mirror and ask ourselves who is ralph nader in 2008 and 2004 the textbooks are going to say that he is the man who ran for president as an independent and finished in third but on some level in the american mentality because we don't have a parliamentary system we have a winner-take-all system and some level in the american mentality he is the second loser he's not even good enough to be the first loser he's the second loser he's just one other loser because of this horse race mentality we have. When I suggested to some of my friends in 1984 that Reagan was such an absolute slam dunk to win in the state that I lived in, and that Mondale had absolutely no shot of carrying enough votes to get those, to get the Electoral College votes out of the state we were in, that it made perfect sense to vote for Mondale. Because you had no risk that somebody you didn't really agree with was going to become president, but you also were kind of sending a message that, you know what, The Reagan that we've got today is not the same Reagan that ran unsuccessfully in 1976. Something's not right about this guy, and we can send a message by voting for the other guy instead. They looked at me like I was crazy, and what they told me was that they didn't want to throw away their vote, because to them, their vote was not a strategic part of the American electoral political process, where you can speak your mind in lots of ways. To them, their vote was a way of conferring esteem upon themselves by picking the winner. And nothing to them was more important than being able to say they were the guy who picked the winner. It isn't just that people feel clever picking somebody who they think will win. More, it's a deeply American fear of being a loser by not successfully casting a vote for the person who did win. I mean, if you voted for the loser, you're the loser too, right? Some people seem more satisfied about being right and getting a terrible result than they would about being wrong and paving the way for a future reform that might actually make a difference and turn this country around. There are other issues related to the electoral process that I intend to ignore for now. I'm not going to deal with the Electoral College. That needs uh, that needs a program of its own. There are things that need to be said about the latter half of the Clinton presidency and what that what impact that might have had upon Gore's candidacy. Uh, but I think I'm going to hold off to that for another time, too. It's enough to plant a seed and say, you know what, I wasn't surprised that Bush barely won. In fact, I was more surprised that he won it all. But we'll get to that in another time. Again, the difference, the difference was people he lost in his own party. He lost his own state. <laughs> he didn't win Clinton's state. You know, there, were, there were very blue states, according to the current political pundits, who didn't vote for Gore. So that gives you a pretty good idea that this red state, blue state thing is fairly malleable. I'm not suggesting we got a bunch of purple states out there. Uh, I just think that the whole color scheme doesn't make any sense. If you go door-to-door in this country, you're going to find a lot of people who have very different political points of view. And it's not just that when you go door-to-door, you're going to find some people who are Republican and some are Democrat. And it's not just that if you go door-to-door, you're going to find maybe as many independents as you will either Republicans or Democrats. The mystery is that most of those people who are independents end up voting for Republicans or Democrats anyway. And if they don't want those candidates, why are they voting for them? That's something we've got to challenge. It's something we've got to change. And the other thing we've got to challenge and change is that there isn't, there's no such thing as a Democrat. There's not one point of view that represents the entire Democratic Party. There's not one point of view that represents the entire Republican Party. Again, back in the early 1980s and the mid-1980s, the Republicans were talking about having a big tent of ideas, the ability to, uh, to reach out to people from all different political ideologies and find a way to come up with some core things that all of them could accept and advance and move forward on. That's gone now. But you know what? We haven't replaced it with the notion that there's one Republican thing to do. And that tells us something about our country. Something about a big lie we've told ourselves we need to stop telling ourselves, and, and that is that, that we're all either from the left or from the right. We're either conservative or we're liberal. We're either Republican or we're Democrat. No. America has been about people who fled that exact type of stereotyping, that exact type of pigeonholing, the exact type of inability to make a difference by voting your conscience, those people came to this country from a wide variety of ethnic experiences, political experiences, religious experiences, to form a new nation where the Constitution itself reads like there was an expectation that a clear majority would not always occur. There was an expectation that a clear majority would not always occur because there would be too many different parties representing too many different political points of view with too many different... Issues of note for them to address to actually capture the imagination. The only reason it even makes sense to think that we might be in a country today where there's one party that speaks for half of us and another party that speaks for the other half of us is that the things we need to be paying attention to have become so watered down, so filtered down, so dumbed down that there is almost no way we can have an effective electoral process because the choices we've got don't even represent what America is about. If you have a different opinion, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com and comments are enabled at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. I'm always interested in different opinions. That's one of the things that distinguishes me and separates me from our political parties. Thanks for listening.